Am I the only one who's offended every time I see a commercial for adult diapers that not only normalizes grown-ups wearing them, but also makes it seem like the height of fashion? Today, with my guest, urologist Dr. Rachel Rubin, I'm taking on the taboo topic of urinary incontinence, why it happens, and how to make it go away. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized women's health expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. But if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. I'm here to give you the inside information. A few years ago, Jay Gottlieb, the former president of adult and feminine care at Kimberly Clark, said, quote, We're trying to make the product more normal and even fun with real people in our ads saying, hey, I have bladder leakage and it's no big deal, end quote. Are you kidding? I know he was trying to sell diapers, but no one, no one who has involuntary loss of urine thinks it's no big deal, much less fun to wear diapers. Urinary incontinence is associated with anxiety, depression, social isolation. It impacts on relationships, self-esteem, quality of life, and work. Women who suffer from stress incontinence are not just afraid to laugh, sneeze, cough, or run without crossing their legs, grabbing their crotch, and wearing a diaper or a pad. They're also afraid to have sex. 40% of women with incontinence report that sexual activity causes them to lose urine and fear of peeing on your partner is a major libido killer. Okay, I'm here to help. And who better to get in on this conversation than my friend, Dr. Rachel Rubin. Dr. Rubin is a board certified urologist in Washington, D.C., who not only is famous for her expertise in treating sexual dysfunction in men and women, but also in the media. And because we are in the same world, we frequently share the podium at conferences and events, including just a couple of weeks ago in New York. And that's when I roped her into doing another episode with me. And if you haven't listened to episode 15, need to know info about the penis in your bed, it's one of the best. We're going to be covering a ridiculous amount of information. So at the end, stick around for my two-minute summary of the whole episode. Hi, Dr. Rubin. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. You know, I, I love doing this, and I'm so glad we were able to connect back up. There's a lot of different types of incontinence, obviously, but today I want to focus on stress incontinence. But before we get to that, can you just run through real quickly the different types of incontinence based on someone's symptoms, what they might be experiencing? Yeah, so incontinence can happen in any gender at any age, uh, and it's never something that shouldn't be talked about with a doctor and, and can be treated, right? There are so many things we can do to help with incontinence. So there is urgent continence, which is that, oh my gosh, I put the keys in the door and I cannot make it to the bathroom fast enough, or I leak because I just feel the urge and it comes on so quickly and then I leak urine. That's urge incontinence. Then there's stress incontinence, which is sort of a pressure-based incontinence, a cough, a laugh, a sneeze. Uh, uh, gosh, I go from sitting to standing and I leak urine. Um, and then there's mixed incontinence, which is sort of a mixture of both. And, and that's common too. And there are many things that go into incontinence. And, and most importantly, there are many treatment options available. There's even a subset of urology devoted to helping with this problem. So it may not be something that's going to be solved by your general practitioner or your general gynecologist, or even your general urologist. You may want to seek a subspecialized care that exists. Absolutely. And we're going to get into at the end how someone finds the right specialist who is going to offer all of the treatments that we're going to be talking about. You know, 
currently the market for adult diapers in the United States, I mean, it's almost as large as, as the market for baby diapers. And while some of this is because birth rates have slowed down and longevity continues to lengthen, more adults than ever are incontinent than before. So can you give us an idea, Dr. Rubin, how, how common is incontinence? I mean, I think people feel so isolated. They feel like they're alone. It's incredibly common, uh, but it, it's really, it's one of those things that nobody talks about, just like erectile dysfunction, right? 60% of 60-year-old men have erectile dysfunction. Oh, but they're, ta- oh, come on, Dr. Rubin, they're, they're talking about talk- it. They're they not are talk- talking they about it because they, they go to their doctors. Wait, 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 wait. They, they go to their doctors because they know if they don't talk about it, they're not going to get a prescription. But they don't talk about it with their friends, right? They may talk about it with their doctors, but incontinence actually the people don't talk even to their doctors because they think it's normal, right? Their mother wore pads and their mother wore diapers and they, and it's so, they just think, oh, I had babies. So it's normal for me to leak when I cough, laugh and sneeze. And normal doesn't mean that there's not something that we can do to help it. That's exactly it. Not only do they think it's normal, but they don't know that there are solutions that have nothing to do with surgery or medications. It used to be that we'd say 30% of women are incontinent. And there are statistics that have come out more recently that show it's, it's, we're talking close to 50%. And as you mentioned, it's not just older people, it's all ages. It's people in their 20s and 30s. And that's because if you look at the risk factors for incontinence, some of those risk factors are more prevalent than they used to be. So run through the risk factors uh, for us specifically when it comes to stress incontinence you've had a baby and you change your pelvic floor, you're going to increase your risk of stress incontinence. Uh, you know, weight can, because it's a pressure-based incontinence, right? If you have a lot of pressure that you put on your bladder, uh, that can absolutely create stress incontinence. Different surgeries uh, can alter the pelvic anatomy, which can increase your risk of stress incontinence. Don't forget smoking. That's always at the top. You know, smoking affects everything, right? Smoking is one of those of things good. that they can just, right? Like, like smoking is one of those things that you tell people, well, don't smoke because it'll give you erectile dysfunction and stress incontinence and, 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 you know, cancer actually doesn't le- doesn't help as much, you know, to convince people to not smoke, but, you but know, there's also a genetic factor. I mean, you mentioned, you know, if your mom wears diapers and, and while there's all these other things going on, we do know that there does seem to be a genetic predisposition. And I just want to return to the pregnancy thing for a little bit, because yes, pregnancy is one of the biggest risk factors. And it's why we see so many young people with incontinence, but it's not just any pregnancies, particularly pregnancies that have big babies and long labors. I mean, you're not an obstetrician. I am. So you haven't spent those long nights with someone pushing for like three hours. I think there's also a lot of undiagnosed and underdiagnosed connective tissue disorders out there, right? We have a lot of, you know, these bendy bodies where people are very flexible and gymnasts and dancers and all of these things. And it's wonderful when you're young, but realize that it's actually sometimes a connective tissue disorder. And so you see people uh, who have these problems and they may have a very much increased risk of prolapse and incontinence and things like that. Before we get into treatments, I just want to talk about how people manage it because managing it, of course, is not the same as treating it. Managing it is, okay, I'm leaking. I got to deal with these leaks to camouflage it as opposed to making it go away. So so let's start with diapers and pads because that's what most people do. Thank you, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, has made it seem like this is what you do when you have incontinence, you just wear diapers. So the, the good thing, of course, about diapers and pads is that they protect clothes. But the bad thing is they don't protect your vulva. Talk a little bit about the impact of not only urine on the vulva, but all these diapers and pads that women are wearing. 
in order to absorb all of that urine, um, there is a lot of chemicals that go in uh, to those absorbing uh, uh, diapers and pads and things like that. Even in babies, right? Babies get diaper rash because it's very irritating to sit in wet diapers uh, all of the time. And so the skin does not like it. The labia do not like it. The clitoris doesn't like it. It can be very irritating, can create a contact dermatitis, and it, it can also have a lot of drying effects on the on the tissue, which obviously we know when you need pads, I understand. But we also need to talk about are there ways that we can prevent or treat, right, that you said we're getting too soon, you know, to treat incontinence so you don't necessarily have to wear a pad all the time. But but let's back up because while someone is going through the treatments that we're going to talk about, they still need to do something to protect. Absolutely. So, So is there any suggestions you might have for protecting the vulva while you are wearing a pad? while you are wearing a diaper. Yeah, I love this very inexpensive thing called Aquaphor. It is this magical uh, barrier ointment that you can just slather all over the tissue. You know, they make fancy ones and they make lots of products that have lots of ingredients. that I think nothing beats good thick layer of Aquaphor to kind of protect the tissue. Yeah. You know, so often women who have incontinence and they're leaking urine, but maybe they have something else like lichen sclerosis or they have drying of the vulvar tissue. So they might be using a steroid cream or an estrogen cream. And then they're like going, oh my God, I need yet another thing. And we have to let them know it's okay after you put on all your other medications and do all your other stuff that you could slather on the aquaphor on top of all that, because it really will help protect your vulva from urine and from the pad itself. Okay. You, what's your opinion on absorbent underwear? Well, I find it interesting. You know, again, we haven't had it around for as long. Um, and I think there's different kinds of absorbent underwear. I think a lot of these, uh, some of the articles coming out now show some chemicals, right? Even in the underwear that are used in order to create that absorbent nature. And so I think we're, which can also very much irritate the vulva. And so I think every vulva is a little different. And so if you like it, use, you know, like you have to test a few products and test what's right for you. Um, but I do have some concerns about how they create such absorbency in these underwear and what that does to the tissue. Yeah. And I think just to be clear, I have the same concerns about does it have an impact on the tissue, but it's not that we're worried about it causing cancer or something like that. I think a lot of people think that they hear chemicals in underwear or pads or tampons, and they think that it's cancer causing. And um, there, there's no evidence of that, but but certainly we know these chemicals can be can be an irritant, and we and we need to think about that. Do you ever tell your patients to fluid restrict so that they won't pee? No, but I, you know, why, you know, as a urologist, we, we live in a Goldilocks, uh, clinic. So in our clinic, as urologists you get people who drink too much water and the people who drink not enough water, right? Cause the people who water restrict get kidney stones and the people who drink so much water all the time, right? Cause thank God, you know, the, uh, the wellness industry has created these giant water bottles that have, you know, liters and liters and liters and people are I don't just know how chugging, people carry them around. They're so chugging big. water all day long, every day. And they pee and then they come come in for incontinence and urinary urgency and frequency and you're like, oh, and you have them do what we call bladder diaries, which you can just Google bladder diary and you can fill one out yourself. And it has to do with how much are you drinking? How much are you peeing? How much are you leaking? And you can bring that to your doctor to show them. But we see an enormous increase in water intake, which is totally not based in science. In fact, there was a great lecture recently all over Twitter that, you know, the, the, the myth of eight out eight glasses of water a day was just made up. Like it has nothing to do 
with science and real evidence. And so if you're thirsty, drink. We know that drinking, you know, little bits throughout the day is very helpful to stay hydrated, to make sure that you don't get dehydrated, to make sure you don't form kidney stones. Um, but if you drink a lot, you're going to pee a lot. And so especially at night, um, we really yeah. want to restrict. We do restrict help people after dinner, cut off the fluids. You do not need to be chugging water, you know, after dinner time because you are going to get up and pee a lot, right? As you're laying down, your body's mobilizing all that fluid from your legs, from being up all day. And so these poor patients are getting up all night to pee. And if you don't sleep, it is so bad for your health. Yeah. And when I did my um, episode on osteoporosis, and one of the things that we were chatting about is, you know, we always say your incontinence isn't going to kill you. Well, your incontinence could kill you if you have osteoporosis and you're leaping up in the middle of the night to run to the bathroom and you're tired and you're confused and you trip on the rug and you go down and you break your hip. And the truth of the matter is, is the reason this all happened was because you were getting up to pee. Because I, I'm, I couldn't agree more. I say it all the time that this term vaginal dryness is actually killing women because it minimizes what's actually happening. When you don't have hormones in the tissue, uh, it leads to infection. It leads to right. osteoporotic fac- fractures. It leads to antibiotic resistance and sepsis and death and things like that. Well, absolutely. And that's the thing is we're looking at the downstream things that happen as a result of, of these conditions. And, and that's what's really important. All right. So Let's do it. Let's get on. Let's get on to treatments. First thing I want to do is to talk about how you decrease leakage using devices, because that's very often the first, you know, we're going to talk about, I think our first line for how we treat it is other people's different, different than other people's first line. But when we talk about devices, um, since the beginning of time, people have put things in their vagina to decrease the leakage. So I'd like you to first start by talking about anatomically what's actually happening when someone loses urine when they cough, laugh, sneeze, and why will putting a device inside the vagina potentially help? So so it's instability of sort of the urethra, right? The the sphincter is not strong enough. And so that big bladder muscle squeeze, um, the, the sphincter is not tight enough. And so it opens up and the urine leaks out. And so the idea is, can we keep that sphincter a, a little bit tighter? Can we put some pressure, right? At the, at the, at like the, if you think of a balloon and you've got that opening of the balloon, can you keep it closed yeah. so that that air can't get out? Keyword that you use, used was instability, that with weakness of the pelvic floor and changes in connective tissue and all that, that that urethra that's connected to the bladder drifts down, right? Right, You know, there's a hammock, it's not being supported. So when you cough, laugh, sneeze, jump, even walk some women, it's that instability that causes the urine to leak out of that bladder. And so the idea behind some of these devices is how can we put everything back in its place? And so if you do have that dropping of the of the tissue, right? There are devices called pessaries, which can help it re- uh, bring that prolapse back up and help puts a little pressure on that urethra. So uh, they have special ones that are made specifically for incontinence that can really help with stress incontinence. They don't work for everyone. It needs to be fit for you specifically and your body specifically. And so you're really going to want to see a specialist yeah. who does work with pessaries if that's a good option for but, you. But just to be clear on a pessary for women who've never heard about a pessary, a pessary is a removable device. It's usually made out of rubber that is placed, a woman places it inside the vagina. Most pessaries she can remove herself either to clean or if she wants penetrative sex, but this isn't something that's implanted. This is a removable device. And some women, I had one woman who came to me for 30 years, every two months to have me remove her pessary, clean it and put it back 
because because she wasn't able to do it herself and, and we got to be very good friends. What situations, I know I have in my head, what situations I use a pessary. What situations do you recommend a pessary? So, you know, if you're if you have a patient who is not going to get surgery, right, or or a, a different kind of procedure and they have I mean, pessary is always the good first line option. If you have a woman who's going to have more babies, right, and she's leaking and she's uncomfortable and she has prolapse and incontinence, it can be a really good option, especially if she wants because uh, rarely will they do surgery when when they want when the patient wants more children because you run the risk of sort of needing another procedure down the road. I say it's really important if you put anything in like a pessary or um, a device or anything like that, you want healthy tissue. Uh, it's really important that the tissue is strong and healthy to be able to hold these devices. And that's where local hormones, which I know we're going to talk about at some point, are yeah. so important as an at, like as the foundational uh, treatment to helping with a strong pelvic floor with a healthy tissue. Because if you put something on wet tissue paper, it's going to break up. And so you need strong, healthy tissue in order to even tolerate penetration or a device or something like that. And that's where um, local vaginal hormones like vaginal estrogen or vaginal DHEA are so yeah. essential for these patients. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about complications about pessaries, because people think, well, it's a pessary. Yeah. Can there be a complication? Yeah, actually, there can be complications. I mean, first of all, it needs, as you mentioned, needs to be fitted correctly. But also you can get breakdown of the tissue. You can get bleeding. You can get Odor. It was my it, very, it was my very first paper I published as a medical student was a pessary, yeah. uh, causing a, a big hole that led to the bowel, you know, to a hole between yeah. the vagina and the bowels. And, and it's, it was not pretty, right? Needing emergency surgery. Yeah. And these situations are rare, but the point is, is that that's why it's so important to go to someone who's experienced in this. The other situation that I find pessaries to be very useful just beside what you talked about in terms of maybe the person who either doesn't want surgery or isn't ready for surgery yet because she wants to have more babies. But I have found it useful in women who only lose urine when they're exercising. Everything's fine. And then out on the tennis court and suddenly she hits the ball and the pee comes out. So I do have women that will use a pessary just when they're out for a run, just when they're playing tennis, if they're going to a comedy club and they know they're going to be drinking and laughing really hard, no, you know, they, is, they use it situationally. This is why it's so important to get to know your patients and to understand what it is that bothers them, right? So I had a patient just recently, she put a testimonial on my social media that she would only leak cyclically on with her cycle. And she, every doctor wanted her to do surgery, wanted her to do all of these things. And we ended up just putting her on a vaginal hormone and it 98% of it got better, right? She was yeah. so thrilled and happy. There was a hormonal component to her leakage, but I spent the time really talking to her, figuring out what is she bothered by? What are her goals? What does she want? Because you have to find the right product for the patient That's in front right. of you, which I think That's is right. rare. And we often, you know, have 10 minutes in the office visit. We said, everyone gets this, this, or this, choose. And then I got to move on to the next patient. That's right. So speaking of the right products, another product that came out a few years ago, but I think about 10 years ago, that really is very helpful for some women is Impressa. And, um, you know, again, talk about what Impressa is, but how it helps support. Yeah, it's a, it's sort of like a tampon that, that goes mm. in and puts pressure, back pressure on that urethra to help with leakage. And so it's an option, right? It's an op, like a lot of times when patients come to us as urologists, they've tried all the over the counter stuff, right? They've tried all of this and they're still frustrated. And that's typically 
excuse me, when they come into our office, but it can be, you know, a, a Band-Aid option that is helpful for patients, right? Get to, right. We're talking them. about the Band-Aids now. We're the not getting to the, yeah, Absolutely. we're talking about the Band-Aids. But the thing about Impressa, and I, and I have to say this, is that a lot of women don't know about it. This is an over-the-counter product. It's in the diaper aisle. And like you said, it's a tampon, but it actually has wires in it. Um, so that you wouldn't use it for your period. It doesn't absorb, but it's structured such that it actually does kind of give a little lift to the urethra. And again, particularly for that woman who's got incontinence when she's running or playing tennis, this can be a nice fix for just those moments. And Mm -hmm. before Impressa was around, I used to tell people, try putting a a, a large tampon in your vagina. And while certainly it's not going to be a fix for everybody, for some people it does help enough that it makes it a little bit, you know, they're a little bit more functional. You know, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the impact of weight loss, because when we talk about why are incontinence numbers so much higher now than they used to be? Well, people have always had babies. People have always, there used to be more smoking. You know, people have always had this genetic predisposition. What's changed is obesity. I think it's a very complicated topic. You know, added weight on the pelvic floor will increase the, the the risk of incontinence. There's no question. But if you are leaking all the time, every time you walk around the, the block, every time you try to jog, every time you try to get on that, uh, you know, that, that elliptical, you are not going to go to the gym. If you think that you smell like urine at the gym and you're uncomfortable and you're, and you feel bad, you are not going to keep exercising. And so it's not just as simple as, oh, go lose weight and then your incontinence will get better. It's very difficult. No, no, no. And again, I'm not minimizing that it's difficult or I don't even want to talk about how to lose weight. If someone loses weight, if, if they are able to lose the weight, is it going to impact their incontinence? It absolutely can impact sort of the pelvic floor and incontinence. I certainly think um, it, it it absolutely can help and can help just put less pressure on the pelvic yeah. floor. When when we look at different body types, and certainly there are women that carry their weight in their butt and their thighs, and those are not the ones that are going to have the big issues. It's belly weight. When women look at, at increased intra-abdominal pressure, it is going to be directly related to how much belly weight they have. So if someone has extra belly weight, I think the real message is, is it's not going to necessarily make your incontinence disappear. But for a lot of people, even losing a relatively small amount of weight, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, if you're very overweight, can to make the difference. So I I think that that needs to be addressed, even though clearly neither you or I are saying that that's the answer. It's the answer for everybody, but it's, it's definitely on the list. Let's put it that way. But now we're going to go to one of your favorite topics. Um, Anyone who spent any time with Dr. Rubin, whether it's an Instagram in the office or for that matter in the grocery store, uh, knows that you spend a lot of time telling every single postmenopause and perimenopause women to use a local vaginal estrogen, not just for the sexual um, benefits, but for the bladder benefits, you know, urgency and recurrent urinary tract infections. But what I want to talk about right now is stress incontinence, which is a little bit different because you and I are both always going on and on and on and on about how local vaginal estrogen is going to help with that urgency. But what about stress incontinence? What yeah, is the, the data, role the of, data, of estrogen? 
the data on stress incontinence is less clear and even to that, that, that it is not necessarily going to cure the stress incontinence. And what I like to think of it, I've had patients like the one I just described where her cyclical hormonal stress incontinence got better uh, with the use of vaginal hormones. But the fact is, is that physics issue often with stress incontinence as opposed to a tissue issue. And so we can heal the tissue, strengthen the tissue, prevent urinary tract infections, really improve the health of the tissue, but it's still often either an anatomical or muscle issue that is causing that stress incontinence. So the hormone alone, I always like to think of it as the hormone is the foundation. It keeps the tissue strong and healthy, but then you may need an alternative therapy like a pelvic floor physical therapist or a procedure to help with the stress incontinence. Uh, and we can, we're going to talk about that, yeah. I'm sure. Um, but I think, I think the data on specifically, here's a local hormone, your stress incontinence will go away. I would say it happens. I see it happen, but it's yeah. not a, it, it's not as common as fixing it totally fixes the urge issues for most people it helps with pain with sex don't you think that's part of it and that a lot of women they have either self-diagnosed or been told that they have stress incontinence but in fact they've mixed incontinence that they have both 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 stress and urge so that if they use a local vaginal estrogen or dhea that while that may not be the number one go-to for stress incontinence, it's going to help the mix. I find for my patients that it helps that I have fewer patients that I send on to what we call, you know, more treatments. Cause you know, my best friend down the road is a, is a, female urologist, a urogynecologist who does surgeries, more surgeries for incontinence. So I work with her very closely. And I would say most of my patients don't go that route because they're happy, right? They they actually feel like things have gotten much, much better with the local hormones and right. the pelvic floor physical therapy. So, um, but they there are a lot of very cool new options out there for stress incontinence. Now, you and I are always on the same page with this is how many women go to their doctors um, and are never given an exam? And they report a symptom and they're given a treatment for it. And if you don't have a very thorough exam, your healthcare clinician has no way of knowing that you have genital urinary syndrome of menopause, that the tissue is dry in addition to the fact that you might have some prolapse or you might have some other explanation for your incontinence. So it's a, hu- it's, 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 a huge, it's a huge problem. A huge that, problem. And, and, and telehealth, and we can go on and on about telehealth. And I think for certain things, telehealth is really, really useful. And it has its place because we do have such an access problem when we're looking at things like vulvar issues, painful sex, incontinence, that it's... It, but it I can't really tell is. you how many urologists, right? Like, t- like how many, because we don't teach doctors how to do these exams. And I'm talking, oh, you know, you're, you know story, right? you're yeah. a gynecologist, I'm a urologist, and we can each, you know, say that our own specialists don't know how to properly do exams and don't regularly do exams for this. And that's a big problem, too, because you could go to the doctor and talk about it, but and they could even look and completely miss sort of the, the forest through the trees. So Absolutely. it's it's a big problem. All right. So long before anybody goes to the doctor, though, they've been at home doing their Kegels and their Kegels aren't working. Um, so, so we're going to talk about why their Kegels aren't working. But can I tell you my Kegel trivia story before we sure. get into that? I love a good fun so, story. So I was doing Ancestor.com um, and doing my family tree. And I pulled up a, um, a death certificate, as you can, for an uncle of mine who died when he was three. And I'm reading through this death certificate. And lo and behold, the doctor who signed the death certificate was none other than Dr. Arnold Kegel. And I thought, 
well, how can this be? That can't be the Kegel. There's got to be more than one Arnold Kegel, right? Well, it turns out it was the Kegel. So when Arnold Kegel graduated from medical school, his first job was as Chicago Commissioner of Health, which is how he came to be the one to sign my Uncle Harold's death certificate. Fast forward a few years, he invented the Kegel exercise. But even he acknowledged that most women didn't do them correctly, which is why he also invented the perineometer, a device that measured change in vaginal air pressure as a woman squeezed, basically as an early method of biofeedback. And in 1931, Dr. Kegel sued his wife, Marie, because she allegedly tried to poison him by putting ground glass in his food. I guess she was tired of doing Kegels. Oh, lovely. I know. So there you have it. That's my Dr. Kegel trivia. You know, every time, I, every time I interact with you, Dr. Stryker, I always learn historical fun facts, which is, uh, I love that. Yeah, that's that's so kind fascinating. of a fun fact. All right. So done with that. Um, talk about Kegels. What are they? Why don't they work? And how can they work? Kegel is right the most famous pelvic floor exercise. And the idea is if you um, if you're sitting and you kind of do the motion like you're stopping yourself from urinating, right? You're you're urinating and then the alarm bell goes off and you got to run out. And so you tighten that muscle. And that's kind of what the Kegel muscle is. It used to be that if you just keep doing that feeling over and over and over again, that muscle, tighten that muscle, that you will strengthen the muscle enough so that you won't leak. The problem with that is that there are many muscles in the pelvic floor. And when you tell someone to do a Kegel exercise, most people do it wrong. Like like well over 80% of people just do it wrong because you they squeeze their butt cheeks or they squeeze their abdominal muscles and they use every muscle they can. And it's just not correct. And, and that's actually lot- not your, I mean, that has been scientifically that, that's shown. Not, right. That's, absolutely. That's that the majority of women who do Kegel and exercises. And men actually, men, and men and women. Men too. I don't see men, but you do. But yes, the majority of people, as well-intentioned as they are, actually do it wrong. <laughs> um, and, and not only do they do it wrong, but they don't do it consistently. You know, I know you have the same experience. I'll be in a room full of women giving a lecture and I'll say, raise your hand if you do Kegel exercises and every single hand goes up. And then you say, keep it up if it works and every hand goes down because they're not doing it correctly. They're not doing it consistently. Tell us how you describe to a woman how to properly well- do a Kegel. Honestly, I actually don't. And this is the the truth because I am in Washington, D.C., has some of the best, as I know Chicago does too, some of the best pelvic floor physical therapists in the world. There are experts who understand how your back and your hips and your legs and your pelvic floor muscles all go together, how you breathe, how you cough, how you laugh, and they can really help with the ergonomics of pelvic health. So they can make you pee better and poop better and have sex better because what they do is they optimize your muscles. It's like a personal trainer uh, and a rehab specialist just for your pelvis. And so I often work very closely with them to really help train patients because no two patients are alike and no two patients need exactly the same exercises. And so that's why I think people fail at Kegel exercises is because it's not a one size fits all treatment. That's right. And and I'm with you, actually. I never describe to anybody how to do a Kegel because I have the luxury of sending them to a really expert pelvic floor physical therapist. And I do have an episode on pelvic floor physical therapy, what to expect, what's going to happen and what it can and can't do for you. So I will put that in the program notes. But what I want to know from, from your point of view, Dr. Rubin, as someone who refers to them all the time, 
How successful is it when you have a woman who has stress incontinence and you send her off to the pelvic floor PT, understanding that there's a range, but assuming that she goes to a good physical therapist, and that's important because a lot of people go to not so good physical therapists, but if someone goes to a good pelvic floor physical therapist and religiously does the exercises, how successful is it? Yeah, I absolutely can't give you a percentage there because every woman is different. And so if a woman has terrible prolapse and uh, like really bad prolapse, and there is no amount of exercises and Kegel exercises that's going to make her leakage stop and is going to make her prolapse better. And so it's really hard to do those studies because you have so many different people. So do I have a lot of patients who have incredible success with pelvic floor physical therapy, but it's the patients who, you know, where there is such an anatomical uh, issue that it is really hard to over overcome that with pelvic floor physical therapy. So it just depends on the person. And if you don't do the exam, if you just send everyone to physical therapy and you don't do the exam, you're going to miss those people where you're like, oh my God, her whole uterus is out of her body. Uh, I probably should have examined her before just saying physical therapy was something she had to try and fail. Absolutely. And one of the other things that we have found is that yes, even if you identify the prolapse, she will still benefit from doing pelvic floor physical therapy because now all of those muscles are working in a dysfunctional way because they've been accommodating whatever else is going on. We really do have two categories of patients with incontinence, if you will. There's, there's the women who are going to benefit from just pelvic floor physical therapy alone. And then there are the women that are going to benefit from another treatment who also benefit from pelvic floor physical therapy. And quite frankly, a good pelvic floor physical therapist is not going to waste your time. She's going to tell you that. Right. She's going to and, call and me up and say, you our- sent me this patient, <laughs> but I got to tell you, I can do Kegels so the cows come home with her. I can do pelvic floor PT for the next 20 years. And until you fix her, fill in the blank, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. And and that's really where the team approach comes in. And so you really need often synergistic therapy. It's often a good vaginal hormone, estrogen or DHEA, a good pelvic floor physical therapist, and then alternative therapies, whether it's surgery um, or a, a, a filler. And so there are options, which we love options. And it's often just like when you we talk about menopause, it's not like try estrogen and then try progesterone. And then if none of that works, you can try testosterone. It's often right a synergistic, right. you know, kind of mixture of everything. Before we leave the estrogen story, I have a couple more questions for you. When we think in terms of local vaginal estrogen, of course, women have the option of a cream or an insert or a little tablet or a ring. And each one has its pros and cons, which obviously I've gone through in prior episodes. And when we're talking about painful intercourse specifically, my feeling is that whatever you use inside the vagina, you're also going to generally benefit from putting some cream at the opening of the vagina in the the vestibule. But when it comes specifically to stress incontinence and even urgency incontinence, do you find that it matters which of the local vaginal estrogens you use? Are you going to, a lot of women use cream because quite frankly, it's the least expensive. It's what's covered. But let's just say insurance is not an issue and a woman can use whatever she wants. Does it matter which of the local vaginal estrogen products she chooses specifically, not about painful sex, specifically when it comes to the urinary symptoms? I'm not sure as long in my, my, I don't know that there's data for this, that specific of data. I wish there were. 
Um, and I would say from what I see, uh, as long as we can acidify the vagina and make that pH four and a half and that the tissue looks healthy and the vestibule is not painful and tender, right, then I do think that that all the products can work with this. Mm-hmm. I do think the vaginal DHEA, um, the trade name is Intrarosa, ha- I would love to study further because it has an androgen in it. And we know the urethra, the bladder, the vagina and the vulvar vestibule have androgen or testosterone testosterone receptors. So I would say that that's a really important question that we don't fully know the answer to. But I think it's important to know why we don't know the answer. And I talked about this a couple of episodes ago and talking about what's on label and what's off label. And what happens with the local vaginal estrogens is that when people go for, when the pharmaceutical companies get FDA approval, they get it for a specific indication. And that indication is vaginal dryness or painful sex. And while we know that you're going to get all the bladder benefits from it, that and it's well studied, that's not part of the label. That's not part of the FDA approval. And we do have we we do have data showing that it helps with urgency, uh, that it helps with preventing urinary tract infection. So we do have some of the the data, mm-hmm. but I think for incontinence, um, and I think we do have data that it helps urge incontinence. I think the full incontinence data is probably not there yet. It's to get as specific as which product, because which you product? know it's very difficult to put all these products head to head against each other with the exact same patient in the exact same way, and to have enough money to fund a study like that. That's right. Um, we have the most experience with the creams. And while the creams are messy and have a lot of downside to it, um, we do know that in terms of really waking up those estrogen receptors in the vulva, the vagina, the bladder, and the urethra, and in correcting the microbiome, as you spoke about, um, that a vaginal cream is, is going to do a great job. Before we leave the whole estrogen story, I do want to talk for a second about systemic estrogen that we use primarily for treatment of hot flashes and for bone health and cognitive function and all those other things. But we don't think about... Um, systemic estrogen in terms of what it might or might not do for the bladder. Can you can you speak to yeah, that? Yeah, this is an interesting story. There is a little data that shows systemic estrogen worsens stress incontinence. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea how good that data is, where it comes from, if it's been replicated and legitimate. I certainly don't see it in my practice that I start a patient on a patch and she says, oh my God, Ruben, I'm leaking like crazy. Um, But we do know that systemic therapies, like if you have a patch or you're taking a pill or you're putting a gel on your body, I find that they are usually not enough for the local vaginal symptoms, the pain with sex, the dryness, the frequency, the urgency. And so this is a really important point because there is this thought process of, oh, if I use both, I'm overdosing on my estrogen or I'm using too much estrogen and adding a local therapy on top of a whole body therapy is totally safe, is totally fine and often very much needed. And so again, actually about 15% of the time in the literature for women, and, and this is important for women to know because if they're using a systemic estrogen and they're still having vaginal or bladder symptoms, it may be that the systemic is just not enough. And, and they, as you and, said, they and their doctor and their doctor probably doesn't know uh, that that's true. If they're not a menopause specialist, that it's totally fine. They, they think, oh, two estrogen products, that's too much. But a local estrogen or DHA product doesn't add any risk to your treatment regimen and is often needed. I think that 15% uh, is low. I think it's a low, right. a low data point. Uh, and, and I think we under 
ask patients about these symptoms because everybody minimizes it to just a little vaginal dryness as opposed to not associating the bladder symptoms with um, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And that we don't often associate, even urologists, you know, that's so much of my platform is getting urologists to realize the hormonal component to bladder symptoms. Of course, women are saying, okay, but what about all those medications on, they see on TV for, for overactive bladder? And there's a lot of them out there uh, that are advertised all the time. Are those medications appropriate for stress incontinence or just for an overactive bladder? Yeah, those medications we use for, for overactive bladder, which is urgency. So they actually don't work for stress incontinence, but, but they're not indicated for stress incontinence. So there are no medications that, uh, that we recommend, uh, oral medications, I should say, that are uh, approved or that work particularly well for that stress incontinence. And it makes sense because we're saying it's an anatomical, you know, pressure on the system. Uh, and so it's hard to get a medication to fix that. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have to somehow lift up that urethra and whether it's from strengthening the pelvic floor muscles or putting a pessary in or putting a tampon in, you know, we are anatomically changing where that urethra is sitting in the pelvis in order to keep the urine where it belongs in the bladder. Um, so no medications for stress incontinence, but certainly for the woman who has urge overactive bladder and has not gotten the relief that she needs from pelvic floor physical therapy, that's an option. All right, before we move on to surgery and balconers and all that, the other thing that we did not talk about is for women who do not have access to pelvic floor physical therapy, which is a large portion of women, either because there's no one in their area, their insurance may not cover it, they may not be comfortable going to a pelvic floor physical therapist, which is hands-on in the vagina, and if you're a guy in the rectum therapy, and there are a lot of people that just won't go there, there are no end of devices out there, balls and wands and probes that they make these claims that promise to help you with incontinence. And we know that the overwhelming majority of them are bogus. They go under my don't be duped uh, category. But having said that, Dr. Rubin, are there any over-the-counter devices that you would tell a woman may be useful to them if they do not have access to pelvic floor physical therapy? You know, I don't have any particular devices that I recommend to patients. If a patient brings one up to me and says, what do you think of this product? You know, I'll look at it and I'll look at them and what they have. And, you know, buyer beware of like, you certainly can try uh, something. And so, no, I wouldn't say that I have any particular product in mind that I've said, oh, this one works for everybody, you know, and, and what will be helpful to them. So I yeah. think we don't have enough data out there. Well, to, we have no data. I mean, it. that's the problem is if you look at most of these devices, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow did not take her jade egg and go and do any studies on whether it helps with incontinence, yet she says that it does. But she could afford to. This is the problem, right? She, but she she, could why would she? Because if it proves right. it doesn't, doesn't work, have, then- She doesn't know, have it, to. And I just did an episode on the O-Shot, and on the O-Shot um, website, it talks about that it's going to cure your incontinence. And we oh, know geez. that that's not the case and that there have been no studies that that show that. And then, but people make these claims. We, there is a device which is currently off the market because it went off during COVID when they ran into supply chain that is um, coming back on the market. And, and in full transparency, this is a device that I've been working with and it's called Attain, A-T-T-A-I-N. And I'm hoping we'll, we'll see it back soon. And this was actually developed in conjunction with the pelvic floor physical therapist and really takes a lot of the elements of what happened 
happens in pelvic floor physical therapy in terms of muscle stimulation, biofeedback, um, getting the muscles to, to relax in addition to contracting. And there have been clinical studies. So stay tuned on that one because hopefully it will come back and hopefully we will have more studies on it as well. So let's move on to um, injections. Injections in the vagina. I just spent a lot of time talking about the O-shot and how you don't want to get that injection in your vagina. But what about injections in the vagina to help with bladder? They're, they're bladder bulking agents, urethral bulking agents. So basically, can you strengthen that urethra uh, and close it up a little bit so that it needs more pressure from that, you know, that it, it takes a little more to get the urine to leak out when you're going to have that bladder squeeze. And there have been products, you know, hyaluronic acid products and things like that. A coaptite is one that have been used for years. There's a newer product on the market called Bulkamid, um, which is a filler, you know, that you put into the urethra that sort of closes it, you know, a little bit tight. I don't know if, if people are doing just the audio, they can't see my hands here, but that kind of closes it shut and creates these like, it kind of bucks up the urethra basically. And it lasts for about seven years, which is very cool. Um, you can get sort of a, a, a top off if it works mostly, but you have a little bit of leakage, they can go back in and add a little bit more. And so the urology can community has been very excited about, about these agents uh, as being a very sort of minimally invasive same-day procedure um, that patients can do to help with their incontinence. So of course, I, a lot of women out there are saying, okay, this is all good, but if the problem is, is that you've got a urethra that's not staying into place because the pelvic floor muscles are weak, why not just hoist it back into place? Yeah, And so, that's what the sling procedures are. So talk a little bit about sling procedures. Yeah, so sling procedure is sort of a hammock. It kind of raises up the urethra to, to be that backstopper so that it keeps the tissue uh, tight underneath the urethra. And that works quite well, oh, but it's a surgery and that people, you know, it, it's a little bit more invasive. If you have a very a laxity of, of everything called pro prolapse and it's not just the bladder that's dropping but the uterus is dropping and the rectum is dropping there are lots of hoistening procedures out there different procedures that you can get for prolapse and you would want to see a urogynecologist who can really do special testing and really figure out what is the best surgery for you because the problem is is sometimes people get a sling surgery and it's not the correct surgery because what they really needed was a, a full prolapse repair and the thing is 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 these specialists exist and they're under there aren't enough of them. We need more of them. But sometimes you may have to travel a little bit to see one and wait a little bit to see one. But that this is what they do all day long. How many times have you heard women say, I had a uterine prolapse. My uterus was falling out of my vagina. I did have a hysterectomy and everything was great. But then I started leaking urine. And they think that the, that the surgery is what caused the urine leakage. And to your point, what they don't realize is that in some cases, a uterine prolapse will prevent the leakage because it kind of props up the urethra. It blocks the urethra. The removal of the prolapsed uterus made right. the woman incontinent. And that's where it comes into going to a specialist. Because if you go to a urogynecologist, before they remove your pro prolapsed uterus, they're going to push it back into place to see what's going on with your bladder and your urethra so that you don't end up with incontinence from your surgery. Right. And and so, and that's really important because then, you know, instead of having three surgeries or four, right, you, you get somebody who's going to kind of help understand all of it and give you the pros and the cons and decide, you know, what makes the most sense for you. And there's a little bit of choice. There's a little little bit of options when it do you use mesh do you not use mesh do you use your own tissue you know these which is why it's important to see a specialist who actually you know knows this data inside and out and can kind of customize it to what's going on with your body 
Botox. You didn't talk about Botox. Botox can be put into the blurred We're not talking about on your face. We're talking about- Right, not on your face. So we actually can put Botox, botulinum toxin into the pelvic floor for pain with sex and tight muscles when indicated. And we can put it into the bladder, but this is typically for overactive bladder. So it's for urgency. It's not a a treatment for stress incontinence. It's a treatment for urgency and urge incontinence, and it can work quite well. You talked a little bit about how to see the right specialist. Real quickly, talk about urogynecologist versus a urologist. How's the yeah, training? Yeah, so different? so so uh, you can go into urogynecology from urology or from gynecology. They both do extra training outside of their general training to really focus on incontinence and prolapse issues. And they are fabulous human beings. And so you can find one through their different society websites. I'll put so, those all in the program which, notes. Which, so which can go on. Them. So yeah. SUFU is the urology one and OGS is kind of the gynecology based one. Some are on both of the websites. And, um, and, and typically, you know, you can find a specialist near you who can help with those issues, but they're all wonderful. They all work very closely with pelvic floor physical therapists, and they really are, are very good when it comes to prolapse and incontinence issues. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. I will put lots more information in the program notes, including where you can find Dr. Rubin on social media um, and all of these organizations that will help you stay dry. So thank you. Thank thank you. you so much for having me. Lots of information. So here's the two minute recap. Incontinence is common, but not normal, and occurs in up to 51% of women. Urge incontinence, or key-in-the-door incontinence, is when women have that bladder pressure, a sudden urge to urinate, and often just don't make it to the bathroom before they get their pants down. Stress incontinence is the loss of urine when there's increased intra-abdominal pressure that might occur with coughing, laughing, sneezing, or exercise. Roughly 20 to 30% of women have mixed incontinence, meaning they have both kinds. Risk factors for stress incontinence include pregnancy, smoking, childbirth, age, menopause, obesity, pelvic floor dysfunction, constipation, and also conditions that cause a chronic cough. Beyond diapers and pads, there is a role for vaginal hormone therapy, especially if someone has mixed incontinence. But when it comes to stress incontinence, usually other interventions are needed. A pessary or a structured tampon can help lift the urethra into the normal anatomic position, and for some women, solves the problem. Pelvic floor PT is the first-line therapy for urinary stress incontinence, and in many cases, is all that someone needs. Studies have shown, though, that for most women, Kegels are generally a waste of time unless working with a pelvic floor physical therapist. In a perfect world, every woman would have access to pelvic floor physical therapy, but that's not always the case. Some over-the-counter devices are useful, but most have not been studied, and they just make a lot of claims. They haven't been proven. If initial strategies don't work, your best bet is to see a gynecologist or a urologist who specializes in incontinence. That specialty is known as urogynecology. And finally, some women will need a procedure. Injection of a urethral bulking agent works in up to 50% of women and may be life-changing. There are also a number of techniques to surgically lift the urethra back into the correct anatomic position. So, Thanks again to Dr. Rachel Rubin, and please check the program notes for lots more information. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of.
I feel blue She helped me see the light 